Well, we want to welcome you to our Prophecy Night uh, question and answer session. It's been uh, 17 weeks and we haven't had a dedicated Q&A. We've just been kind of steamrolling ahead with the various topics about, uh, you know, why Bible prophecy matters now more than ever. Uh, but uh, based on my because of my travel schedule and because of uh, just a good break in our topic as we move on to the next topic next week, I thought it'd be good to just take a break and. Uh, you know, give you the chance to ask questions. Now, I know that our audience has been growing significantly because we keep up with the metrics, but I really was not prepared when we sent out the email earlier today for the response, when, and people have been texting and emailing all day with questions, so there's no way we're going to be able to get through all of them, uh, but I think what we'll do is go through um, and kind of do a back and forth, uh, you know, giving you guys a question and then the ones that have been phoned in and stuff like that. Uh, just to try to be fair, but I've got plenty, so if we reach a lull, well then uh, we will, you know, we, will have, we won't have to worry. Let me put it that way. So uh, I wanted to mention a couple of things before I take the first question. First of all, thanks for being here tonight. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I look forward to Tuesday nights. I look forward to the music and just being able to kind of set my mind on things above and prepare my heart for what we're going to talk about and then... Uh, also, just thinking about the return of the Lord. I mean, it just puts things in perspective as we see things rapidly declining around us and we see the stage being set. It's just a great reminder uh, to know that uh, the Lord is, is coming back. So, so thanks for coming out tonight. Thanks for those of you that are joining us uh, online. Uh, a couple of quick announcements. Uh, I wanted to take a moment to mention the Not By Works website. You know, I hardly ever do that. It's been a while since I've talked about it, but I want to make sure everyone knows that notbyworks.org is a great uh, clearinghouse place to go for all kinds of resources. And right there on the home page at notbyworks.org, there is a what's called a highlight carousel or a promotional carousel. Sometimes people will call it that. Uh, and that's just where we post any new content. So anytime we have a new devotional that I write or a new message either here at Plum Creek or elsewhere or a new uh, podcast that I do or interview that I do, it's always posted there. Um, and so you can scroll through that carousel by clicking the arrows on the left or the right inside the picture there. Uh, and if you just want to kind of, you know, check it out and say, hey, is there anything new? Maybe I missed something. That's the best place to start. And there's a lot of material there. We leave some slides up there all the time, like our preparedness guide is there. I think you have to scroll through about 10 or 15 uh, slides to get to it, but it's always up there. Uh, some of the other links to different pages on our website are there, but, um, you know, I just wanted to make sure you're aware of kind of how that works. We get a lot of emails from people looking for things, and I'm thinking, well, if they had just scrolled through the highlight carousel, they would have seen it, but maybe they're not aware, because it's not obvious. Unless you kind of go to the home page and sit there for a couple of seconds long enough for it to start cycling through, because it goes through automatically. You don't have to click the arrows. Um, and sometimes people go straight to the home page and then click on another sub page to go to videos or podcasts or whatever. And they're never on the home page long enough to realize that's a rotating carousel. So anyway, just check that out sometime when you have time. And on that carousel, you'll find some of our most recent uh, materials. So yesterday I had the privilege of being on Hope for Our Times with Tom Hughes. 
uh, and uh, we talked for an hour. He called it the countdown has begun. Fantastic discussion. Really appreciated him. I've, like some of you perhaps, I've followed him and watched him for years and was really uh, considered it an honor to be on that show. So that's a video. You can actually watch that video or, of course, all of our videos are also podcasts. So if you prefer to just listen to the audio, you can do that. And then I just returned from Tulsa, and my two messages there uh, were the Great Satanic Reset, A New World and an Old Enemy, and then on Saturday, Transhumanism, Creating God in the Image of Man. And both of those videos are posted at notbyworks.org or also on our Rumble channel. So if you want to watch those, I encourage you to check, uh, check those out. Uh, so with that, let's, uh, let's dive in uh, tonight to our question and answer time. Like I said, I've got quite a few questions that people have sent in. with the microphone. So as a reminder, speak really loud because this isn't an amplifier for us in the room. It's just for the recording. So speak into the mic, but you'll also need to speak up so that we can hear you in the room. So anybody have a question tonight? Anything to Bible prophecy? Come on, don't be shy. Okay, right here. Uh, so this is a UFO question. Okay, hold the mic up real close. There we go. Absolutely. So, um, I'd be disappointed if there wasn't a UFO question. So inside UFO, do, do, um, is there a, a physical um, mechanism for generating electricity or anti-gravity? And if there is, do you think that they're trading or giving this technology to uh, certain folks uh, in world power? So the question is, let me see that mic, too. I want to make sure. It's kind of hard to tell if both of these are, are picking up. Let's see here. Testing one, two, one, two. Yeah, it seems to pick up uh, for me. So the question was, just to make sure that it picked up, I'm not sure if it did. Uh, are they trading technology on these UFOs? Inside a UFO, is there, what did you say, electricity and things like that? Okay. So I'm trying to think. The last time I was inside a UFO, um, no, I uh, I've not been inside a UFO, so it's it's hard to say. Uh, but um, I, I, again, I think that UFOs are demonic or dimensional. They're part of the evil spirits that can manifest materially. Uh, we already talked about how that can happen in terms of um, human you know, uh, biological manifestations, other human beings, you know, or animals, cryptids, and things like that. So I see no reason why some of these objects that are commonly referred to as UFOs might not also be demonic, uh, you know, manifestations. Um, that being the case, I, I think if you knocked on it, you would hear a sound. If you scraped it, you'd get a scratch. If you cut a wire, you'd, you'd get a spark. So um, as to the motive, uh, I think it's, it's hard to say. I think it's like most of Satan's agenda. It's complex. It's multi-layered. It's not just one thing. It's not monolithic. I think he's the great deceiver. I think we've talked before about how he's trying to garner uh, team members for Team Satan in the final battle through doing genetic experimentation and trying to you know, send fallen angels to impregnate women. We read about that in Genesis 6. Um, I think uh, sometimes it takes uh, human, uh, 
not human, but earthly materials to be able to engage in an earthly battle to, you know, that he, Satan's not omniscient and he's not supernatural in the sense of being divine. So whereas God can move mountains and do things with just a word, Satan has to go about it different ways. Now, he has certain powers, spiritual powers, and those signs and wonders are going to increase the closer we get to the end times, and especially during the tribulation. But that doesn't mean he can just cause problems in the same you know, methods that God uses when he wants to do something supernatural. So I think when Satan's engaging in earthly realm warfare, he's going to take on some of the types of warcraft that you know, we might see on earth. Does that help? Okay, who else? Let's do one more because I want to test this microphone. Okay, back here. T talk into it for a second there, Greg, and see if it... It's not. Um, so hold on. Test one, two. Got it. So this question came from one of my boys, but I, I won't embarrass them, but they were too embarrassed to ask themselves. But it's on the topic of UFOs. So when you think of um, how um, spirits have manifest themselves, evil spirits as well as good spirits in bodily form, right? We've, we've talked about that. Is it possible that UFOs and other objects could be, be manifested from good and not just evil? Okay, so great question. So the, the heart of the question is something that even non-biblical ufologists and people that don't have the same worldview that we do have labored over for you know, decades now, and that is, are UFOs malevolent or benevolent, right? So could they be, uh, are they here to do us harm or are they here to warn us? And so let's take the conventional sort of secular worldview first. If you think these are aliens from another planet who are trying to make contact, there's, they're kind of split right down the middle. Some uh, so-called experts, ufologists, uh, say, oh, they're, they, you know, if they were wanting to hurt us, they could have hurt us long before now. They're trying to warn us. That's the reason they're swarming around nuclear facilities or trying to warn us to, to get rid of our nuclear technologies. But then the other side says, no, 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 there's, they're scoping us out, they're spying, they're trying to dismantle some of our you know, defense mechanisms, and eventually it's going to be a takeover. So uh, we reject both of those because we don't think they're little green men from Mars. We think this is a part of a larger spiritual battle that Satan is raging to try to take over the world. Um, I think the best answer I can give going to the biblical record is we know that angels can manifest as ministering spirits in human form to help us, right? Um, so that's from Hebrews. Uh, so I see no reason why some of these other manifestations might not be benevolent as, as well. God could, you know, have, have uh, I mean, I, I, I could make up hypotheticals, but I mean, God could use spiritual beings to protect, to intervene, to help, you know, whatever that is. So... Uh, doesn't have to be human form only. Um, but when it comes to the traditional study of UFOs or what we call UAPs now, most of the data on those seems to be malevolent. I mean, they're appearing at a time when 
you see other phenomena going on. My whole chapters 9 and 10 in volume 2 deal with all these phenomena that seem to have an evil intent behind them. People have senses of foreboding and gripped with terror terror when they see them or they come down with diseases or they um, there's radiation present. Um, I was just listening to a story that I followed for years, read a couple books about it and it always intrigues me and I saw a podcast uh, that I recently stumbled on, and it was on this topic, and so I listened to it, and it wasn't anything I hadn't heard before, but it just reminded me about the Dyatlov Pass in- incident in, in Russia in 1959, where 10 hikers actually ended up being nine, one of them went back before this incident, but were mysteriously attacked and disappeared, and it was very much similar to a cattle mutilation where their eyes were taken out and their tongues were taken out and things very bizarre. Injuries did not make any sense. They were inconsistent. They were uh, had stopped and were camped out on this long hike trying to get their level three certification in Russia for, for hiking, whatever that was at the time. And, uh, you know, when they finally found these people, the, the tent was sliced open with a knife from the inside. <laughs> and the people were found, in most cases, without uh, hardly any clothes on, not something you do in the mountain, the Ural Mountains is where this was of Russia, you know, without, in the middle of the winter, you're not going to flee your tent without your your backpacks and your coats and your boots and your winter gear. But anyway, uh, when they tested the bodies, which they eventually found, they had high levels of radiation on them. You know, what? how do you explain that? And then the Ural, the natives in that area, I forget what they're called, starts with an M, but, you know, they reported that same night that they went dis- went missing, seeing blue orbs in the sky you know, a classic UFO case. So you just have a lot of data out there that indicates that most of what we would call UFOs is demonic, not good, but from a theological perspective, could God use, uh, you know, spirit beings for good to manifest in some way other than a human being? Absolutely, in my mind. So, somebody else. Let me take a question here from... uh, from someone that wrote in. So these are in no particular order. Well, I mean, they are in a particular order than the order they came in, but I didn't have time to go through and uh, put them in an order of my favorites. So I'm just going to kind of take them one at a time. Uh, I might skip one if I don't like the question, but guess what? You won't know because you're not looking at my notes. Uh, but anyway, the first one was, uh, and, I, and I understand this question because this is a topic that is so, very confusing and there's a lot of bad teaching out there about it. And frankly, I don't think my teaching has been all that clear on this issue as we've talked about in the recent weeks, but it's about the Nephilim. So we did a whole session on the Nephilim. The Nephilim, remember, are the offspring of the unholy alliance between the fallen angels and the women that we read about in Genesis 6 that the New Testament also talks about uh, in Jude and in uh, 1 Peter. Uh, so we see you know, references to this in the Bible. We see it in extra-biblical literature. Uh, no question that the Nephilim existed, no question what they are. Um, I have said that the Nephilim survived the flood based on the plain teaching of Genesis 6-4, which point blank tells us there were Nephilim on the earth before the flood and after the flood. So this question is, if the Nephilim survived the flood and started procreating again after the flood, who did they procreate with? Everyone else supposedly died in the flood, so did they procreate with Noah's family? So I think the person who asked this question is misunderstanding. The Nephilim, which are the offspring of this fallen angel, human women, you know, uh, uh, encounter, they did not 
procreate with humans, they procreate with each other potentially, is what we're saying. Or their offspring can, can procreate. So, um, you know, the Noah's family didn't in, didn't wasn't needed at that point because as the population increased after the flood and you had more and more people, these Nephilim that survived the flood could potentially, again, this is an open question, I'm not going to die on this hill by any means, but it's, it's conceivable that, that they survived the flood by their physical bodies died and perished in the flood like all human beings did, uh, and their spirit realm rose above the floodwaters, and then after the floodwaters receded, they could potentially shapeshift back into uh, human form. Now, that's one option. As I mentioned before, another way that we could have Nephilim on the earth after the flood is that fallen angels, who would not have been impacted by the flood at all, they're up in the heavenlies, might have done the same thing again, a different group. The original fallen angels that committed this heinous you know, intrusion, the Bible tells us they're locked up in Tartarus permanently until the lake of fire. But who's to say other fallen angels might not have tried the same thing? I mean, I know that sounds crazy. Why would you do that when you saw what happened to your fellow fallen angels when they tried it? But, you know, as I pointed out, uh, we, we, we certainly have a lot of evidence from a human realm that people, even though punishment is a deterrent for crime, people still commit the same crimes. I mean, people have been put in prison for life and give, given the death penalty for murder, yet we still have murderers. So I don't see why fallen angels might not behave in the same way. So either way, those are the two ways in which we could have Nephilim. Those Nephilim are, when they're in their physical bodies, they have all the physical elements of a physical body, and they could procreate, uh, and, and, and they would pass down. And so here we are 6,000 years after the flood, uh, I'm sorry, 4,000 years after the flood, and we have the bloodlines of the Nephilim still with us. But to, back to the questioner, th this does not imply that these Nephilim needed to procreate with the people that were on the ark, if that makes sense. All right, someone else have a question in the room? Anybody? Okay, over here. Yeah, I just thought of this. I this is a question I had months ago, and just remembered. So I, it seemed I I seem to remember you said something about Biden, and you said something like, if he was human or not, or something along those lines. And I meant to ask you right away what you meant. So I don't know if that's right or not. If you, that was you or not. Okay. So. Did I say that like in public or was that like a, <laughs> okay, it was, it was a prophecy night. Okay, so no, I'm just kidding. Yes, I mean, I think there, there, there is some anecdotal evidence that there are multiple Bidens out there. I mean, I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that. It doesn't mean that there is, but you know, if you look at some side-by-side -side photos from mainstream appearances, news, uh, you know, reports and uh, press conferences and things like that, it just seems something doesn't add up. You've got you know also evidence of weird stuff going on with his skin. So I understand, and this is a well-known fact that you know presidents have doppelgangers that they use to sit in for certain security reasons, but. 
I just pose the question that knowing the Luciferian agenda and where Biden fits in that, and I've said this in the books, he's a placeholder. In other words, he's not a, he's, he's more than just a pawn in the game. He's an irrelevant pawn in the game. He's just somebody that's taking that office because somebody has to sit in the Oval Office. Um, but he is, you know, you've had presidents before who were very instrumental in advancing an agenda, such as Donald Trump, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and others that were there that did key things. I think Biden is just, I just, if he is, uh, you know, if it is just one man, he's, he's got some clear uh, mental issues. He's not able to connect the dots. He's, he's often disoriented, confused, that kind of thing. So to me, that's just further evidence of my theory that he's a placeholder. Uh, and I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens in 2024, who they put forward. Remember, my view is it's selections, not elections. Um, but could he be non-human? I mean, with AI, I just spoke this weekend at, at, in Tulsa about, I can't believe it's not human and how they've got AI newscasters and AI you know, people that look real. Could he be? It's certainly technologically possible. I don't have any inside information on that, but it's a, when you see some of the things that he does, it's, a, it's not that unreasonable of a question in my mind. So, okay, somebody else. Or let me go, let me, you have one? Okay, hang on. Let me, let me see if uh, the mic, I can get the mic to pick up. Piggybacking on Julie's question, do you believe in the conspiracy of Big Mike? The, cons the conspiracy of what? Big Mike. Big Mike? I'm not familiar with that one. Michelle Obama. Oh. <laughs> okay, let me. So the question. So the question is about uh, Michelle Obama. Uh, let me say this. I think if you take the time to research it, um, there's no question from multiple sources, you know, all kinds of uh, books that have been written by firsthand eyewitnesses that Barack Obama was heavily involved in the homosexual scene in Chicago long before he became senator and then became president. I mean, people have died over this. People have been shot because they told the truth about this. Um, so uh, he was f frequently at a very key popular uh, hotspot for homosexuals in Chicago. Rahm Emanuel was there with him many times. Um, so that's well documented. I don't know if it's true. I don't have any, you know, firsthand uh, proof of it myself, but I can tell you a lot of people have reported it. So then if that's the case, then, you know, when you're, when you're groomed to be a Manchurian all along, which he was, you know, and there have been great top, you know, award-winning journalists that have written about this, like Jerome Corsi and others, uh, you know, he's, he was birthed and groomed from birth by the CIA to become a president. Um, that's why his record is so foggy, and we don't have great details about what colleges he went to and where are his college records, where is his birth certificate, that kind of stuff. Uh, but when that's the case, you know, you're, you're, you, if you're going to be president, you're going to have to play the role. You're going to have to have a traditional president, first lady scenario. And so I don't, I don't know, I'm, but I, it certainly would not surprise me. Let's put it that way. Yeah, you threw me with that one. 
Okay, anybody else? All right, let me go, let me go here while you guys are thinking. Um, let's see. This is just a good general question. We've talked about it before, but I think it is worth, uh, is worth you know, revisiting. This person wrote in and said, I'm wondering what your opinion is concerning how a person should respond to these things that are happening or how they should prepare for what might be on the horizon. I'm particularly interested in areas of how we protect ourselves on the Internet, how to handle the changing financial climate and the way we buy and sell, or when worse comes to worse, to what extent and how could, could and should a person unplug and hide if, if that's likely to ever be needful uh, and if it can even be done. So lots packed into that question, but let's take the first one first. I recently uh, started using at our office in our home a, essentially a, a uh, VPN, but it's called decentralized or uh, let's see, it's called... Uh, yeah, decentralized private network or a DPN. They're fairly inexpensive. You can get one for about $250. It's seamless to integrate right into your internet, whatever kind of internet you have, whether that's cable modem, uh, you know, uh, uh, phone, DSL, fiber optics like what we have. You simply install it between where the internet comes into your house and the router. Plug and play, no settings necessary, and it instantly shuts off any access from the outside to what's happening on the internet inside your house. And we noticed an immediate difference in terms of pop-up ads. It's also got, you, it does have some settings that if you, if you care to, you can go into the back end and change some settings. And it, it has uh, porn filters and you know, video filters and things like that, uh, which if you have kids is, is great. Um, but, uh, but mainly it's just a privacy thing. And so there are a lot of, uh, privacy experts out there that have been touting VPNs forever, and they're still a good solution. The only problem with VPNs is you're depending on whoever owns the virtual network. And even though they might be like-minded, it's kind of the same problem that you have with crypto. You know, yeah, it, it gets the government out of your business, but someone else is in your business, and do you really know whether you can trust them? And what might they be doing? You know, someone comes along and you know, Amazon or Google comes along to the owner of that VPN and says, I'll give you a million dollars to sell me all the data from your customers. Maybe they'll do it. I don't know. So this is a, kind of an end run around that. It's basically all the benefits of a virtual private network and zero risk because it just is like an impenetrable firewall around your house. So I would recommend looking into that. Um, just Google uh, DPN, uh, D as in decentralized private network. Uh, then they asked um, just about general preparedness. Um, you know, I think uh, we've talked a lot about the, the financial situation. My view hasn't changed on that. If you don't touch it, you don't own it. If you can't touch it, you don't own it. So uh, be prepared to lose whatever you have in banks and portfolios that you can't touch. Doesn't mean you will. Just make sure that you've stopped and at least contemplated the fact that what if I wake up one morning, log into my accounts, and it's all gone? And, if, and, and, and whatever that threshold is, which is different for everyone, make sure that you know, you're beneath that threshold. Um, you gotta, you got to live in this world. You can't drop out of society and move to a mountaintop and live in a bunker. you got to live. And the way the game is played now, we use uh, you know, digital money. And so you know, keep enough in there to function, but don't keep more in there then you're prepared to lose in case you do lose it. Um, I'm not a financial advisor. This is just my 
studied opinion based on you know my understanding of the Luciferian conspiracy and where things are headed. Um, as far as unplugging and hiding, uh, kind of the same question that I, you know, same comment that I made a moment ago. Uh, we have to have eyes wide open, you know, like 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 talks about, and recognize that um, all of our stuff is being tracked. But, you know, as long as we're able to keep using it for the furtherance of the gospel to make a difference in this world, you know, that's fine. But at some point, you know, you may have to, you may not have a choice but to unplug and go off the grid. And frankly, contemplating that now is going to give you a far greater leg up on the rest of the world when they're kind of forced in the spur of the moment to make that decision. So, you know, I use smartphones. I don't like it, but I use it. Uh, I need to for our ministry. Um, use computers, obviously. We use live streaming. We're on, you know, platforms like Rumble. Um, you know, it's all, we're kind of sucked into it, but at the same time, um, you know, we have thought through the issues of what if, and if I had to unplug tomorrow, you know, we could survive. It wouldn't be easy. It would be a great sacrifice, and, you know, again, it would not be easy, but it can be done. So I think, you know, start thinking through it now, the implications of it, what does that look like, what's involved in that, and be prepared. Um, and yes, I do think it can actually be done. I think it's, it's going to be a matter of going back to primitive times and living like they did in the pioneer days when they didn't have any of this stuff, where you killed your own food that day, you, you know, you, you built your own houses, you, you know, you, everything you, you lived off of, you got. You didn't get to run to Walmart or go on Amazon.com. All right, does somebody else have a question from here in the room? Anybody? Okay, Julie. Let's make sure I get my mic uh, connected here again. Okay. Are the Nephilim of today large, like they were back then, like giants? Would they, or could they just be? Because I'm thinking of Biden again. Because I thought maybe you thought he was a Nephilim, and I thought, well, he's too small to be a Nephilim, so. Okay. So, are the Nephilim of today large? Um, I said earlier, and I believe this, that obviously their DNA over, you know, the 4,000 years since the flood, roughly speaking, uh, has been corrupted. And so I don't think some, I think someone could have Nephilim DNA today, which is not human DNA, uh, and be not large, not giants. But originally, the immediate offspring of this unholy incursion, they were giants. I mean, they, they had, this was, you know, early on in human history, first of all, uh, when depravity had not taken quite the toll that it has now, 6,000 years later. So people lived longer. They were generally healthier. You know, they lived to eight, 900 years old. And then you have angelic beings taking on human form, cohabiting with them, and you produce this unheard of hybrid race which is going to have the best of the spirit realm and the best of the human realm. And yeah, they were giant. And, um, uh, but I don't think they have to be that today. Now, I want to be clear just because we're talking about some pretty edgy stuff. I, don't leave here and say, JB said Biden's a Nephilim. I don't know if Biden's a Nephilim or not. I wouldn't have even contemplated that. I'm just telling you there are Nephilim around today. 
I mean, to me, that's both biblical and anecdotal. Uh, and Satan is going to harness his uh, evil spirits in the celestial realms, as well as these hybrids, all together in this lead up to the final cosmic battle of, of Armageddon. So, all right, anyone else? All right, let's take, okay, wait for the mic here. We've heard about the uh, hot spot off of Oregon that's heating up the Pacific and the tectonic plates going, you know, over and under each other. And then um, the big one in California or Yellowstone blowing up. Do you think any of that would happen before the rapture? Or is this like a preparation for what's going to happen in the tribulation? Okay, great question. Okay, that's a great question. I would say, first of all, it absolutely could happen before the rapture. Uh, and also, it could happen not organically. Uh, we know that the technology exists to induce volcanoes, to induce earthquakes. Um, and uh, we know, let me see if I can call up a verse here. Now I'm going to really get complicated with my technology, but hopefully, uh, hopefully I can do this. So I want to... No, let's see. Yeah, here we go. So if you look at Romans, um, eight, and then we scroll down to about here, it says, um, creation, let's just pick it up in verse 18. Uh, or verse 19, the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Um, verse 22, for, the, for we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So why do I bring that up? Well, we need to understand that the, the fall of man affected more than just mankind. Obviously, it separated us from a holy God. It meant that we need to be redeemed by, you know, the blood of Christ and so forth and so on. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it didn't affect the rest of the world, too. And indeed, it did. And so uh, it affects the reason we have uh, thorns on rose bushes and, you know, diseases on plants. And we have, you know, all kinds of issues. So the whole earth, just as mankind is getting worse and worse and worse, 2 Timothy 3.13, the whole earth is getting worse and worse and worse. And so I do believe that, you know, things are heating up, that the earth is groaning and, it's, if the Lord tarries is coming, we could see more and more disasters. We know that uh, as part of the setting of the stage, like you said, these types of things are definitely going to be happening in the tribulation. Jesus talks about earthquakes specifically during the tribulation. So if that's going to happen, I don't think it's going to just turn on like a, a, a spigot. I think it's going to be something that we see ramping up. And I've showed b before how, you know, when we did the one on geoengineering, how the statistics are showing a massive increase in 6.0 and higher Richter scale earthquakes. So I think uh, you've got kind of a both and, you know, uh, both natural, you know, problems with the earth are happening and man is, you know, the, the global elite are toying with the natural resources to try to create things. And then on top of that, you could have false flags where they claim there's some major disaster, but maybe there really isn't. Uh, just to uh, you know, achieve their ends, the Hegelian dialectic. 
Um, could it happen before the rapture? Absolutely. You know, we don't know, but it's certainly going to happen to a much greater extent during the tribulation because we have so much devastation that the Bible talks about during that time. All right. Anyone else? Okay, back here. Uh, could you tell um, tell us what you know about uh, Chick-fil-A? I believe uh, Truett Cathy, that's a gentleman who started Chick-fil-A. And now I think I heard on the news that Chick-fil-A hired a marketing uh, executive that's uh, a pro-LGBT or whatever activist. I do have, happen to have some info on that because I saw those uh, texts and emails going around too. Uh, the fact of the matter is that guy had already been there for a long time. They did not hire anyone new. It's fake news. Um, they've put out a statement saying that this diversity guy has been there for, I don't know. Oh, they didn't say that? I thought that was them saying that. In any event, is it tr from a trustworthy source? Or is it? I would assume. Which is the fake news, I guess. Is what <laughs> <I'm thinking. laughs> they, they documented previous references to that guy. As Going way back, yeah. So here's the fact. Every corporation, and I know this from being in higher ed, even Christian schools. have a diversity officer. It's just the way the game's played. You know, now you can find ways around hiring homosexuals and transvestites and all this stuff that hopefully will not get you sued, uh, but it's not uncommon to have a diversity officer. This goes back all the way to the EEOC and the racial, racial issues in this country where we were, you know, we were a racist country at some point, you know, uh, uh, prejudiced against certain uh, skin colors. And so, you know, that, the fact that they have a diversity person didn't bother me. I went to the site, I looked at the links, I looked through it. They have a statement that's been there for a long time that talks about how when hiring people, they will not discriminate on the basis of race, color, creed. And it goes on to talk about sexual orientation, you know, all that stuff. I'm not happy with that at all, but I don't think that's new breaking news. I think that's been out there. But uh, so I, I think it was, it seems to be, to me, uh, there was much ado about nothing, but you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, we have to make our choices. I, I go to Chick-fil-A because it tastes good, it's usually clean, it's excellent service, and it's a positive experience. Um, if I stopped to do an inventory of the worldview of every owner of every business that I shop at, I would dig a hole and climb in it and never come out. I mean, seriously, you know. Uh, so I'm not opposed to people that are, you know, boycotting stuff. Obviously, everybody has to draw their line. I boycotted uh, things, but uh, you know, I wouldn't say that this is a case that somehow they've gone woke. I don't see any evidence of that. So, all right, let's look at another one here online. First uh, Timothy four three. So I'm going to go uh, to First Timothy four three here if I can get up there. Can't find my cursor here. There we go. So 1 Timothy 4.3 is the question. This is a great passage that talks about the end times. It says, 
Uh, we'll get to verse 3 in a second. But the Spirit expressly says uh, that in the latter times, uh, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, uh, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So the question is, what's going on with this you know, forbidding to marry and forbidding certain foods, and how does that fit in you know, to uh, the end times and so forth? Uh, so in the context there, this is late... The first century, uh, we're in First Timothy, so what's that, 62 or so, during Paul's, uh, actually it was after his first Roman imprisonment, so probably 63, 64, sometime in there, give or take a year, and, you know, they, the early feelings of uh, the Gnosticism that came about really in full bloom in the second century were already there, it was called asceticism. It was this notion that anything physical or material was evil and that the world all revolved around a spiritual realm. So there were people in that culture already beginning to teach that, you know, things like, you know, physical intimacy and marriage and certain types of indulging of certain kinds of foods were evil and only, you know, and that the spiritual elites and the really enlightened ones would abstain from that. That was the idea. And so... Uh, you know, everything is written in a context. Paul is saying that already 30 years into the church, the, he's warning Timothy that these types of things are going to happen. I think 2,000 years later, we see other manifestations of the same thing. I think it's not exactly, you know, on point of forbidding to marry, but clearly we've seen an attack on marriage, right? We've seen an attack on, on gender and on food, <laughs> you know. Every day they flip-flop what used to be bad is good. I saw an article just the other day, MSG is now good. So go out and get some MSG, you know. Wait another two years, they'll say it's bad again. You know, it just depends who pays the most money for the advertising and for the scientific studies. So I think, you know, we're going to see more and more of this. It may not all be connected to this idea of asceticism or trace its roots back to the Gnosticism of the second century. But it's still a sign of the times that people are basing their viewpoints and making declarations and in, imposing rules on others based on non-biblical, non-moral uh, premises. So we kind of talked about that with the Chick-fil-A thing. You know, you've got people, uh, you know, the, the big concern there is, is Chick-fil-A going woke? Well, what is wokeism? It's this notion that, you know, anything goes, total inclusivism, it doesn't matter you know, who you think you are, what you self-identify as and all that, we've got to accept you. We've got to accept your immorality. We've got to accept all of your sinful behavior. And we've got to normalize it and not only accept it, but applaud it. That's wokeism, really. Um, none of that comes from the Bible. And so if you take the timeless truth out of Paul's statement here, I think what he's essentially saying is, you know, in the end times, people are going to listen to demons and demonic viewpoints more than they are the Word of God. And that's why it's so important for us to, you know, stick with the Word of God. All right, so that was that question. Hopefully the person was listening. If not, they, maybe they can watch the, the video. Um, somebody else in the room? Yes, up here. Have you looked into at all um, 
mRNA vaccines being given to livestock? And if so, what uh, do you have any thoughts about that? So I looked into mRNA been, being given to livestock. I've just seen bits and pieces and headlines, but I've not really studied it. Um, I am working on the new book, which is going to have a section on the whole genetic aspect. So I'm sure I'll get into it a little bit more for that, for the new book that's coming out. Um, but I did talk about, you know, Moderna a lot in Chapter 9 of Volume 1. And, you know, the technology, or maybe that's not even the right word, but the capabilities of this genetic modification uh, beneath the skin that they're talking about, it, I see no reason why it couldn't equally apply to animals as it could humans. So, in fact, actually they've been experimenting on animals a lot longer than humans. <laughs> so, uh, somebody else. Good questions, by the way. We kind of started out with some pretty wild questions, but we won't blame anybody, Julie. Um, uh, just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, no, they're good questions. Hey, I've, I think about those things all the time. So, yeah. Oh, hold on. Let me get your mic turned on. When we're raptured, we're changed from the corruptible to the incorruptible in a twinkling of the eye. For the people that survive the, uh, the tribulation and they're alive at the point of Christ's return in the beginning of the millennial kingdom, how long before they get their incorruptible bodies? Okay, another great question. So the, the answer, and I was in Tulsa, we just had this question uh, at the conference. Uh, I didn't get to answer it. I was wishing I could have answered it, but uh, it wasn't addressed to me. Um, so let's set the stage. Uh, in fact, I've got a, let me see if I can go, because I've got a chart here. So let me put the chart up. Because uh, this will be very helpful, I think, in understanding the question. Uh, so the question is, when will our bodies be resurrected? Uh, when will we get our resurrected body? Uh, we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that uh, by the end of the millennium, the millennium is that first thousand years of the uh, kingdom. So let's put this up there. So. Uh, you see on the far right there, you've got the second coming and the Battle of Armageddon. Then Daniel talks about a 45-day and a 30-day combined 75-day preparation period. Then the kingdom, the millennial phase of the kingdom begins. And then the first thousand years of it is on the old heaven and the old earth. And then the old heaven and the old earth are destroyed. The new heavens and the new earth are created, Revelation 21 and 22. And we continue in perpetuity uh, for all of eternity. Uh, when you get to that eternal state, only you know glorified saints will be there. You, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. So we know that, uh, let's go back to the chart on when we receive our resurrected bodies. We know that the church age, you and I, get our resurrected bodies at the rapture. And that includes everyone who's died. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the dead in Christ rise first. That's their bodies. You know, their soul is already in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. 
No such thing as soul sleep. We never cease to exist. Once human, always human, always conscious. The question is, are you living inside this physical tent of flesh and bone, or are you living in the presence of the Lord? Or if you're an unbeliever, are you living in torment in hell? So those loved ones that have died in the church age, from 33 A.D. on the day of Pentecost forward to, to today, they, if they've died and they're a believer, they're in heaven, but their bodies are in the grave. So at the rapture, they will receive their glorified body, their final glorified body. We will too, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we will all be changed. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. So if you put 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 together, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, The dead in Christ will rise first, then we are caught up together with them. 1 Corinthians 15 says, not everyone's going to die, but we all will be changed, we meaning believers. So we get what's called a translation rather than a resurrection, because if you don't die, you don't have to be resurrected. So that all happens at the rapture. Then uh, at the second coming, seven plus years later, because remember, after the rapture, there's an unspecified length of time. Now, if you look at the left-hand side of the chart, after the rapture, there's an unspecified length of preparation prior to the signing of the peace treaty. So then the peace treaty is signed. That starts the clock ticking on the seven years. So everyone that gets saved after the rapture, but before the second coming, they're going to, you know, if they die, if they die during this time, which many of them will, untold millions will be martyred for their faith in Christ, they will be resurrected, uh, according to Daniel 12 and Isaiah 26, uh, also correlated with Revelation 20, uh, at the second coming. So, so far we've had two groups of believers resurrected. The church was resurrected at the rapture. Old Testament saints and tribulation saints together resurrected at the second coming. So that when the kingdom starts, everyone who uh, has been saved since time began up to that point and has died will be resurrected and have their glorified body. Those who survive the tribulation and their physical bodies, they don't die. They're the ones that Jesus says, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. They step into the kingdom in their physical bodies. Uh, and then they're the ones that populate the earth. They have children, and, and those children grow up. And like every human being ever born, they're born dead in their trespasses and sins. They have to be saved. Some will believe the gospel during the millennium we're talking about. Some won't. Um, so your question is, when do the people in the millennium who entered in their physical bodies, right, at the end of the tribulation, when do they get that glorified body? So the, the short answer is the Bible doesn't tell us specifically. I've written an article called Death in the Millennium in which I uh, postulate, and I think there's good biblical support for it, that when the millennium is in force, when Christ comes back in fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy, takes the throne, the kingdom has finally arrived, uh, that's when the new covenant is fully in effect. And according to the new covenant, believers won't sin. And so it's my view that the only people who die in the millennium are unbelievers, not believers. And those believers, since they don't die, don't need to be resurrected. And what will happen is, and this is speculation because the Bible doesn't tell us, but it, we can, we, what does the Bible say? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. We know that. So somehow, even though it doesn't tell us, there must be a point in time in which these believers in their physical bodies in the millennium get translated the same way the church was. 
So just as the church believers are translated at the rapture, I believe that at some point in the millennium, probably at the end, all, all believers will then be translated prior to the destruction of the old earth and be given their glorified bodies to enter all of eternity. That's, that's my view. But we don't know. The Bible does not tell us how those people or when those people get their glorified bodies. So if we go back to the chart, that's why I state on here, Old Testament believers resurrected at the second coming, church believers resurrected at the rapture, uh, or translated if you're still living at the rapture, which we all hope to be. Um, you know, like someone said this weekend, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for the upper taker, not the undertaker. That's, that's what I'm hoping for. I hope the upper taker comes before the undertaker. But anyway, uh, the tribulation believers at the second coming, millennial believers, I say, are translated at the end of the millennium. That's a theological supposition, not an exegetical verse and chapter. And then all unbelievers are resurrected at the end of the millennium. It's called the second death, and they're cast into the lake of fire. Does that make sense? Or, I mean, my answer at least makes sense. may not be right. Pretty sure it is, but... Uh, okay, good question. Somebody else? Anybody? In the room? All right, let me go back here to my questions and see if someone had a... Another question. Oh, this is an interesting one. We, we think about this a lot. They asked, if the Jews had accepted Jesus as their Messiah during His ministry on earth, instead of rejecting Him, and the kingdom had come, how would people have been saved ever since that time? Um, well, first of all, the, the second part of that question is an easy one to answer because all humans of all ages since Adam and Eve are saved the same way, by grace through faith. Nobody gets saved any other way. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. It's all by God's grace. And you receive the gift of salvation by simply trusting in Christ and Him alone for salvation. Um, but this is a hypothetical. Hypotheticals are always kind of hard to think through. But I guess if we think just humanly speaking... And, and it's hard to do that because we have Old Testament prophecies that told us the Jews were going to reject the Messiah, that told us Jesus was going to be the suffering servant, that he was going to die. Daniel, for example, talks about how he's going to be cut off after he comes. Um, but setting those aside for a moment, theoretically, if they had accepted him, he would have taken the throne. The kingdom would have started immediately. But Again, all hypothetical, people still would have had to be saved. Nobody gets a pass just because of what era they live in. As I just talked about in, in Gary's question, people during the millennium that are born after Christ takes the throne on earth are going to still need to be saved. You don't get to be automatically go to heaven just because you're born during the millennium. So that would be my answer to that question is that uh, they would be saved the same way everyone would. But, of course, it didn't happen that way. We know... Uh, the rest of the, you know, the story. We know how it played out. They rejected him. Now, next time, they'll receive him. Yep. Anybody else with a question? Yes, sir. Bring the mic on up to him. Yeah, I just kind of want to, uh, I don't know, I think about this sometimes, but like all the unbelievers who have, have passed away, but it, it's it's a isn't it's a future event that they are all going to be cast into the lake of fire. But 
what now? I mean, what kind of state are they in? Are they just isolated? Are they in suffering in some way? Or I, I just like some clarification on that. Yeah. So they definitely. So uh, let me see if I can throw the uh, verse on the screen again, uh, and let's go to Luke sixteen. Uh, beginning in verse 19. Um, this is Jesus telling a story about a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. He fared sumptuously. Um, and uh, there was also a certain beggar named Lazarus. Now, I believe, and a lot of uh, Bible scholars believe this, I think correctly, that this is a real account. This is not a parable. Parables don't usually ever name the participants. So Jesus is talking about an, a historical event here. Um, so Lazarus was a beggar that was uh, laid at the gate, uh, desiring to be fed with crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Uh, the, the dogs came and licked his sores. But, so it was the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's just a metaphor for heaven, wherever the presence of God is. Remember, if you die, you go immediately be in the presence of the Lord. David talked about this in the Old Testament. He said, I can, I can go to my son, but he can't come back to see me. Or talk, the prophets often talked about prepare to meet your maker, that kind of thing. So we know that there's no such thing as soul sleep. You die, you go either to heaven or hell. But the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So there's your answer. They're tormented. The final resting place, or I should say the final dwelling place of the unredeemed, the unsaved, is eternal torment in the lake of fire. Uh, the, eternal, the, the final dwelling place, eternal dwelling place of believers is the new heavens and the new earth. So we talk today about heaven and hell, but really we're using those terms as a catch-all phrase to refer to where to believe? Where are dead believers today, and where are dead unbelievers today? But technically, the final dwelling place of unbelievers is the lake of fire. The final dwelling place of believers is the new heavens and the new earth. But for believers today, in the interim, they're in a place of bliss and joy and fellowship and in the presence of the Lord. For unbelievers, they're in a place of torment, as Jesus talks about right here. Good question. Okay, let me pull one up here uh, from the text. Um, so this is an interesting one. I love the Not By Works family. We, we've reached such a broad spectrum, you know. Uh, you know, here at Plum Creek Chapel, we're pretty consistent pre-trib, pre-mill, you know, Bible-believing, conservative uh, teaching. That's the, the history of our church, and that's certainly what, what I teach now. But you know, our ministry reaches a lot of people who are interested in end time stuff and interested in some of the conspiracy stuff, um, but they don't necessarily have the overall biblical viewpoint that, that we have. Um, so this person asks, with new age on the rise, uh, if our brothers and sisters accepted Christ Jesus early on in life and then became deceived by this movement and are in fact full on practicing it, will they still be qualified to be raptured with the rest of us? So that's an easy one. The answer is an overwhelming yes. <laughs> so when you trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, 
You are born again. Your spiritual DNA is instantly changed. Jesus says you pass from death to life and shall never come into judgment. John the Baptist said you are no longer a child of wrath, but you are a child of God. And nothing you can do after that point can undo that. You know, uh, you, 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 you can you know, commit sins. You can depart from the Lord. You can abandon the faith. You can all of that stuff. And while it's very serious and comes with serious discipline of the Lord and serious consequences, it cannot sends you to hell. Because if it could, then Jesus was lying when He said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. John 10, 28. What He should have said was, I give you eternal life and you probably won't perish as long as you hang on tight. He didn't say that. So, I know that's hard for us to understand because we've been conditioned with false teaching to, to kind of think in terms of a quid pro quo and a, and a retributive relationship with God that we do our part, He does His. How in the world can somebody who abandons the Lord, or how in the world can somebody who becomes a Hindu ever, you know, go to heaven? Well, I'm not saying they will, but if they do, it's in spite of that. It's because at one point in their life, at a punctiliar moment in time, they placed their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. And because of that, they were instantly changed. Their name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Nothing can change that. And if you think uh, that it can, then it opens up, which clearly the Bible teaches it can't. You know, nothing can separate us from the love of God. But let's just play the devil's advocate and assume that it can. Well, then it opens up a huge can of worms of what else might disqualify us. You know, we tend to think of the extremes. You know, I may not become a Hindu, but what if I quit going to church? What if I stop reading my Bible? What if I stop praying? What if I completely walk away from the Lord? What if I live a profligate life and end up just, you know, indulging the flesh and a drunkard? And, you know, what if I, what if, what if, what if, what if? At what point have you crossed a line? But the fact of the matter is there is no line because God gives eternal life on one condition and one condition alone, and that's faith in Christ. So all believers will be raptured. The rapture isn't some type of... Um, you know, grading on a curve where only the best of the best get to go up. <laughs> All believers will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air if the rapture were to happen today. Now, there'll be a, a time where we are evaluated and rewarded for how faithful we were. Those believers who steadfastly trusted the Lord, walked by faith, not by sight, lived a godly life, catering to the Spirit, not to the flesh, they're going to be rewarded richly in heaven. Uh, those who didn't are not going to be rewarded in heaven. And the Bible talks about that. Uh, Luke 19, Jesus gives the example of the one servant who did nothing with his life. And he, he didn't get any rewards. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 talks about how some believers that stand before the judgment seat of Christ, everything in their life is going to be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. It's not going to pass the test. So they're not going to be rewarded. Uh, but it doesn't keep you out of heaven if you fail as a believer, and certainly adopting a New Age religion would be a, a definite uh, a failure. A um, couple of questions here as we get close to on our time here uh, from someone who's pre-wrath. Uh, who knows what the pre-wrath view of the rapture is? Anybody not heard of that or not that familiar with it? If your life depended on it, you couldn't really explain it. The rest of you, if your life depends on it, I'm tempted to call on one of you that didn't raise your hand just to prove you. Okay, I'm just kidding. All right, well, let me go back. Uh, 
Let me see. Let me go back to my chart because it will be helpful. All right. So if we go, I just need an end times chart here. All right. This will work. So if you look at this chart, you see the seven-year tribulation right there in the middle of the screen. At the midpoint of that is the abomination of desolation. We believe, and I believe it very passionately and unapologetically, that the rapture of the church will occur before that seven-year period. I won't take the time to give you all the proof texts for that. I've written a whole chapter on it in my book, What Lies Ahead. I've gone, done tons of uh, you know, videos about it and, and through the years. But the short answer is the first uh, 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy were all Jewish in nature. The prophecy was given to the Jewish people. It has nothing to do with the church. The church and Israel are two distinct programs of God. And we're not going to participate in that final seven-year period that is called the time of Jacob's trouble, Israel's trouble. Um, plus, it's a mystery. You know, the, the, uh, the church beginning was a mystery. It began unexpectedly and suddenly in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost with a mighty move of the Spirit. I was just looking at that again today in preparation for our wrap-up Sunday of the book of Acts, just kind of going back through the book of Acts. The church age began suddenly and unexpectedly. It was never predicted in the Old Testament. There's no Old Testament package that's, passage that says, hey, watch out. Someday on the day of Pentecost, there's going to be this mighty move of the Spirit and all Jews and Gentiles are going to come together in one body. Nowhere. It was, it was a mystery, meaning unrevealed in the Old Testament. And just as the beginning of the church was a mystery, Paul tells us the end of the church is a mystery. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed, right? And that's the rapture. So it's, it's something that has nothing to do with God's program for Israel. But with that background, <clears throat> there are some people who suggest the rapture happens at the midpoint of the tribulation, those are called mid-tribulation uh, view, the mid-tribulation view. Um, that's the easiest one to discount, in my view. Uh, just try, I mean, discounting their arguments. I discount them all because the Bible doesn't teach it. But their arguments, I, I have a logical explanation for. They get that simply because they, they correlate Paul's teaching that the rapture happens at the last trump with the last trumpet of the trumpet judgments, which happen at the midpoint. Well, there's lots of trumpets in Scripture. Last doesn't mean last one ever. It means last in a series. The last trump that happens at the rapture is the last trumpet of the church age. But there are lots of trumpets that happen after that, even in, in, in Scripture that we talked about. There were trumpets that happened before that. So they just make a bad cross-reference correlating two passages of Scripture that don't go together, and it leads to a whole uh, false view. But there's another group out there uh, that believe the rapture will happen pre-wrath. And that's an important term because we all agree that the Bible teaches that the church age believers will not have to be present on the earth during the outpouring of God's prophetic wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9. We are not children of wrath, so we're not going to be here when the wrath of God is poured out. Um, so, as the name for this view indicates, the pre-wrath view says, well, I agree with you that we're going to be raptured before the wrath of God, but I don't think the whole seven years constitutes the wrath of God. They think the wrath of God starts halfway through the second half. So, if you look at that chart, you look at the second three and a half years, that time when Israel is being persecuted because the Antichrist breaks his treaty with them and 
turns his wrath against them, Satan's wrath. Um, if you just put a line dividing that second half, roughly, they would say that's when the wrath of God starts and we're going to be raptured at that point. So, uh, you know, I respect In terms of uh, understanding that you know, we are raptured before the wrath of God, but there's too much biblical evidence to me that proves the whole seven years is the great day of the Lord's wrath. Zephaniah, uh, you've got uh, Isaiah talks about this. You've got um, Revelation chapter 6 after the Antichrist is just unveiled and the judgments are just beginning at the very beginning of the tribulation. If you correlate that to what Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse, I think I've got a chart uh, for that one too. So, you know, it's remarkable, the words of Christ, how they correspond to Revelation chapter 6. Jesus says in the future tribulation, watch out for false Christ. The first thing that happens in the tribulation according to Revelation is the unveiling of the false Christ, the Antichrist himself. Jesus warns against wars. First thing that happens after the Antichrist is unveiled is you have you know, people killing each other. Then you've got famine. You, you, you Revelation talks about the scarcity of food, death. One quarter of the population uh, dies, the cries of the martyrs. Uh, all of this happens at the beginning of the tribulation. And what do we read in Revelation chapter 6? I think it's verse 16. Hide us from the wrath of God because it's being poured out on us. So the wrath doesn't happen later on in the tribulation as the pre-wrath guys uh, suggest. It happens from the very outset. So that is uh, the wrath of God. So uh, back to this question. And by the way, in a quick five-minute answer to a question, I can't do justice to refuting the pre-wrath view. There's lots of great work out there on that. Arnold Fruchtenbaum has written the preeminent work refuting that view of uh, his uh, former colleague who popularized that view. Uh, and I've talked about it. I have a chapter on it in my book. Uh, but that's the short answer. So uh, the question by this person who holds the pre-wrath view, a couple of good questions. Number one, why have pre-tribulation pastors not been scolded for the non-rapture in 1988? Well, with all respect, I'd say you're not listening because I, for one, and all of my colleagues have scolded them ad nauseum. I've constantly criticized date setters like you know, uh, Edgar Wisenot, even Hal Lindsey, with all respect, uh, who he admits he was wrong on that now, and others, even the late Chuck Smith, who suggested the rapture was going to happen in 1988. Uh, so they are being scolded. I, that's his word. I wouldn't use that word. But we've pointed out, hey, that's not a good idea to set dates, and we disagree, and you shouldn't have done it. So that's my answer to that question. Um, uh, and then why do pre-tribulation Christians not understand that imminent can still be applied to the pre-wrath position. Again, I, I don't understand the question because uh, he must have a different definition for imminent. Imminent means could happen at any moment. That's the definition of imminent. Could happen at any moment. Nothing has to happen before it. It's not second, third, fourth, or twelfth in a list of items. It's number one. So if, back to our chart, if you put the rapture at the midpoint of the second half, look at all that stuff to the left that has to happen before the rapture. So, for, so it can't be imminent. For example, the abomination of desolation has not happened today. I can say that with 100% certainty because the temple doesn't exist. 
there's not an antichrist claiming to be God and telling everybody to worship him, and he hasn't sacrificed, made a sacrifice in the temple that doesn't exist. So, but according to the pre-wrath view, that has to happen before, you know, the rapture. So the rapture cannot be imminent. So I just, you know, any view besides the pre-trib view destroys imminency. If you say that the rapture happens at the midpoint or at the second half of the second half or at the end of the tribulation, those are called post-tribbers, post-tribulation view. Any time after the start of the tribulation, you've got a problem with imminency. Does that make sense? You know, you, you, these things haven't happened yet, so the rapture can't happen yet. But we believe, over here, that's the reason that's reflected this way on the chart, on my chart, is that the rapture could happen at any moment. So that church age there, you see the cross on the far left and then church, I mean, that's obviously not drawn to scale. That reflects 2,000 years so far, almost. And at any point in there, the rapture could have happened. At some point, it is going to happen. And when it does, that will set in motion a great series of events pertaining to the end times that start with the Antichrist rising to world fame and uh, signing a, a peace treaty. So those are my answers to those questions. Good questions and, uh, you know, wish we had more time to, to flesh them out in greater detail. But uh, any last question here from the audience? I'll give you the last uh, word over our online audience. Anybody? It's not a prophecy question. Is that okay? Absolutely. Yeah, as long as I know the answer. <laughs> okay. Um, so, and I've racked my brain over this, and I'm sorry if this is a question that is an obvious answer. I just haven't figured it out. Um, but when it says in Scripture, uh, Jesus speaks to the multitudes, and I mean, we're talking thousands in some cases, uh, and, and we're talking about him being on a boat, I think, at some point, and he was speaking. And I'm trying to understand how could they hear him? I mean, I understand echoes, but I just, with no, with no megaphone, with no, <laughs> I just can't figure that out. So. <laughs> That's actually an excellent question. I love questions that are rooted in the text. You know, you're reading the Bible and you go, how does that work? You know, that's a great question. So first of all, uh, it actually would surprise you how well you can project your voice in the right environment and circumstances. You know, amphitheaters, for example, I mean, they didn't have technology for thousands of years. And yet, you know, people in the Roman Colosseum and places like that, they could hear just because of just the simple rules of sound and the way sound travels. So I don't have a problem seeing Jesus. You're right. There was one time when the crowds were so huge that he had to get on a boat and drift out into the see a little bit just to make room because they were crowding in. But I could see how he could easily project in his humanness uh, well enough for people to hear. Uh, but also I think you probably had some, uh, a little bit of the telephone game going on maybe. You know, people, the closer the crowds were, they could hear. And I think those were vast crowds. I'm not, don't mistake. When he's up on the hill and the Sermon on the Mount, you know, or the feeding of the 5,000, a lot of examples. I think there were vast crowds, but I think it does reach its limit at some point, and probably people then retold the story to those that were, were behind them or when they went home. But, uh, yeah. I mean, of course, you know, you can't discount the possibility that Jesus, should he have chosen to, could have used supernatural means for people to hear, but I don't think there's any reason to, to think that that was customary, at least the way I read it. So, 
Great question. Well, thank you guys uh, very much. Uh, we'll do this again. Uh, you can always send in questions uh, anytime. And of course, we routinely have, we try to allow 20 to 30 minutes at the end of each prophecy night for questions uh, as well. But uh, let me close us in prayer and then we'll wrap up for the night. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it does provide everything we need for life and godliness. It gives us the answers that we may struggle with and wonder about. Lord, there are so many things we don't know and don't understand. So forgive us if we uh, go too far in our speculation on some things. But Lord, we just so desperately want you to come back, want you to uh, rescue us from this present evil age. And so we say Maranatha. Lord, I pray that if there's one here tonight that doesn't uh, know your son as their personal savior, that today they would place their faith in him as the only one who has the power and authority, having defeated death, hell, and the grave, to give them life. And I pray, pray that they would trust him today, and today would be the day of salvation. Dismiss us now with your blessing and watch care, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.